Chapter Thirteen of Journey to the Center of the Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green. Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter Thirteen: The Shadow of Scartaris. Our supper was eaten with ease and rapidity after which everybody did the best he could for himself within the hollow of the crater. The bed was hard, the shelter unsatisfactory, the situation painful, lying in the open air five thousand feet above the level of the sea. Nevertheless, it has seldom happened to me to sleep so well as I did on that particular night. I did not even dream. So much for the effects of what my uncle called wholesome fatigue. Next day, when we awoke under the rays of a bright and glorious sun, we were nearly frozen by the keen air. I left my granite couch, and made one of the party to enjoy a view of the magnificent spectacle which developed itself, panorama-like, at our feet. I stood upon the lofty summit of Mount Sneffel's southern peak. Thence I was able to obtain a view of the greater part of the island. The optical delusion, common to all lofty heights, raised the shores of the island, while the central portions appeared depressed. It was by no means too great a flight of fancies to believe that a giant picture was stretched out before me. I could see the deep valleys that crossed each other in every direction. I could see precipices looking like the sides of wells, lakes that seemed to be changed into ponds, ponds that looked like puddles and rivers that were transformed into petty brooks. To my right were glaciers upon glaciers and multiplied peaks topped with light clouds of smoke. The undulation of these infinite numbers of mountains, whose snowy summits make them look as if covered by foam, recalled to my remembrance the surface of a storm-beaten ocean. If I looked towards the west, the ocean lay before me in all its majestic grandeur, a continuation, as it were, of these fleecy hilltops. Where the earth ended and the sea began it was impossible for the eye to distinguish. I soon felt that strange and mysterious sensation which is awakened in the mind when looking down from lofty hilltops, and now I was able to do so without any feeling of nervousness, having fortunately hardened myself to that kind of sublime contemplation. I wholly forgot who I was and where I was. I became intoxicated with a sense of lofty sublimity, without thought of the abysses into which my daring was soon about to plunge me. I was presently, however, brought back to the realities of life by the arrival of the Professor and Hans, who joined me upon the lofty summit of the peak. My uncle, turning in a westerly direction, pointed out to me a light cloud of vapour, a kind of haze, with a faint outline of land rising out of the waters. "'Greenland,' said he. "'Greenland?' I cried in reply. "'Yes,' continued my uncle, who always, when explaining anything, spoke as if he were in a Professor's chair, we are not more than thirty-five leagues distant from that wonderful land. When the great annual break-up of the ice takes place, white bears come over to Iceland, carried by the floating masses of ice from the north. This, however, is a matter of little consequence. We are now on the summit of the great, the transcendent Sneffels, and here are its two peaks, north and south. Hans will tell you the name by which the people of Iceland call that on which we stand. My uncle turned to the imperturbable guide, who nodded and spoke as usual one word, Scartaris. My uncle looked at me with a proud and triumphant glance. A crater, he said. You hear? 
I did hear, but I was totally unable to make reply. The crater of Mount Sneffels represented an inverted cone, the gaping orifice apparently half a mile across, the depth indefinite feet. Conceive what this hole must have been like when full of flame and thunder and lightning. The bottom of the funnel-shaped hollow was about five hundred feet in circumference, by which it will be seen that the slope from the summit to the bottom was very gradual, and we were therefore clearly able to get there without much fatigue or difficulty. Involuntarily I compared this crater to an enormous loaded cannon, and the comparison completely terrified me. To descend into the interior of a cannon, I thought to myself, when perhaps it is loaded and will go off at the least shock, is the act of a madman. But there was no longer any opportunity for me to hesitate. Hans, with a perfectly calm and indifferent air, took his usual post at the head of the adventurous little band. I followed without uttering a syllable. I felt like the lamb led to the slaughter. In order to render the descent less difficult, Hans took his way down the interior of the cone in rather a zigzag fashion, making, as the sailors say, long tracks to the eastward, followed by equally long ones to the west. It was necessary to walk through the midst of eruptive rocks, some of which, shaken in their balance, went rolling down with thundering clamour to the bottom of the abyss. These continual falls awoke echoes of singular power and effect. Many portions of the cone consisted of inferior glaciers. Hans, whenever he met one of these obstacles, advanced with a great show of precaution, sounding the soil with his long iron pole, in order to discover fissures and layers of deep soft snow. In many doubtful or dangerous places it became necessary for us to be tied together by a long rope, in order that should any one of us be unfortunate enough to slip, he would be supported by his companions. This connecting link was doubtless a prudent precaution, but not by any means unattended with danger. Nevertheless, and despite all the manifold difficulties of the descent, along slopes with which our guide was wholly unacquainted, we made considerable progress without accident. One of our great parcels of rope slipped from one of the Iceland porters and rushed by a short cut to the bottom of the abyss. By midday we were at the end of our journey. I looked upwards and saw only the upper orifice of the cone, which served as a circular frame to a very small portion of the sky, a portion which seemed to me singularly beautiful. Should I ever again gaze on that lovely sunlit sky? The only exception to this extraordinary landscape was the peak of Scataris, which seemed lost in the great void of the heavens. The bottom of the crater was composed of three separate shafts, through which, during periods of eruption, when Sneffels was in action, the great central furnace sent forth its burning lava and poisonous vapours. Each of these chimneys or shafts gaped open-mouthed in our path. I kept as far away from them as possible, not even venturing to take the faintest peep downwards. As for the professor, after a rapid examination of their disposition and characteristics, he became breathless and panting. He ran from one to the other like a delighted schoolboy, gesticulating wildly and uttering incomprehensible and disjointed phrases in all sorts of languages. Hans, the guide, and his humbler companions seated themselves on some piles of lava, and looked silently on. They clearly took my uncle for a lunatic, and waited for the result. Suddenly... The professor uttered a wild, unearthly cry. At first I imagined he had lost his footing and was falling headlong into one of the yawning gulfs. Nothing of the kind. I saw him, his arms spread out to their widest extent, his legs stretched apart, standing upright before an enormous pedestal, 
high enough and black enough to bear a gigantic stature of Pluto. His attitude and mien were that of a man utterly stupefied. But his stupefaction was speedily changed to the wildest joy. "'Harry! Harry! Come here!' he cried. "'Make haste! Wonderful! Wonderful!' Unable to understand what he meant, I turned to obey his commands. Neither Hans nor the Icelanders moved a step. "'Look!' said the Professor, in something of the manner of the French general, pointing out the pyramids to his army, and fully partaking his stupefaction, if not his joy, I read on the eastern side of the huge block of stone the same characters, half eaten away by the corrosive action of time, the name to me a thousand times accursed. "'On, Saknusum!' cried my uncle. "'Now, unbeliever, do you begin to have faith?' It was totally impossible for me to answer a single word. I went back to my pile of lava, in a state of silent awe. The evidence was unanswerable, overwhelming. In a few moments, however, my thoughts were far away, back in my German home with Gretchen and the old cook. What would I have given for one of my cousin's smiles, for one of the ancient domestic's omelettes, and for my own feather bed? How long I remained in this state I know not. All I can say is that when at last I raised my head from between my hands there remained at the bottom of the crater only myself, my uncle, and Hans. The Icelandic porters had been dismissed, and were now descending the exterior slopes of Mount Sneffels on their way to Stapi. How heartily did I wish myself with them! Hans slept tranquilly at the foot of a rock in a kind of rill of lava, where he had made himself a rough and ready bed. My uncle was walking about the bottom of the crater like a wild beast in a cage. I had no desire, neither had I the strength to move from my recumbent position. Taking example by the guide, I gave way to a kind of painful somnolency, during which I seemed both to hear and feel continued heavings and shudderings in the mountain. In this way we passed our first night in the interior of the crater. Next morning a grey, cloudy, heavy sky hung like a funereal pall over the summit of the volcanic cone. I did not notice it so much from the obscurity that reigned about us, as from the rage from which my uncle was devoured. I fully understood the reason, and again a glimpse of hope made my heart leap with joy. I will briefly explain the cause. Of the three openings which yawned beneath our steps, only one could have been followed by the adventurous Sagnusum. According to the words of the learned Icelander, it was only to be known by that one particular mentioned in the cryptograph, that the shadow of Scartaris fell upon it, just touching its mouth in the last days of the month of June. We were, in fact, to consider the pointed peak as the stylus of an immense sundial, the shadow of which pointed on one given day, like the inexorable finger of fate, to the yawning chasm which led into the interior of the earth. Now, as often happens in these regions, should the sun fail to burst through the clouds, no shadow, consequently no chance of discovering the right aperture. We had already reached the 25th of June. If the kindly heavens would only remain densely clouded for six more days, we should have to put off our voyage of discovery for another year, when certainly there would be one person fewer in the party. I already had sufficient of the mad and monstrous enterprise. It would be utterly impossible to depict the impotent rage of Professor Hardwig. The day passed away, and not the faintest outline of a shadow could be seen at the bottom of the crater. Hans the guide never moved from his place. He must have been curious to know what we were about, if indeed he could believe we were about anything. As for my uncle, 
He never addressed a word to me. He was nursing his wrath to keep it warm. His eyes fixed on the black and foggy atmosphere, his complexion hideous with suppressed passion. Never had his eyes appeared so fierce, his nose so aquiline, his mouth so hard and firm. On the twenty-sixth, no change for the better. A mixture of rain and snow fell during the whole day. Hans very quietly built himself a hut of lava, into which he retired like Diogenes into his tub. I took malicious delight in watching the thousand little cascades that flowed down the side of the cone, carrying with them at times a stream of stones into the vasty deep below. My uncle was almost frantic. To be sure, it was enough to make even a patient man angry. He had reached to a certain extent the goal of his desires, and yet he was likely to be wrecked in port. But if the heavens and the elements are capable of causing us much pain and sorrow, there are two sides to a medal. And there was reserved for Professor Hardwig a brilliant and sudden surprise which was to compensate him for all his sufferings. Next day the sky was still overcast, but on Sunday the 28th, the last day but two of the month, with a sudden change of wind and a new moon there came a change of weather. The sun poured its beaming rays to the very bottom of the crater. Each hillock, every rock, every stone, every asperity of the soil had its share of the luminous effulgence, and its shadow fell heavily on the soil. Among others, to his insane delight, the shadow of Scataris was marked and clear, and moved slowly with the radiant start of day. My uncle moved with it in a state of mental ecstasy. At twelve o'clock exactly, when the sun had attained its highest altitude for the day, the shadow fell upon the edge of the central pit. "'Here it is!' gasped the professor, in an agony of joy. "'Here it is! We have found it! Forward, my friends, into the interior of the earth!' I looked curiously at Hans, to see what reply he would make to this terrific announcement. "'For it,' said the guide, tranquilly. "'Forward it is,' answered my uncle, who was now in the seventh heaven of delight. When we were quite ready, our watches indicated thirteen minutes past one. End of chapter 13